What if we distributed CPython, the runtime, in the same way we distribute Python packages as pre-built binary wheels that only need to be downloaded and unzipped to run? For starters, that'd mean we could ship and deploy Python apps without worrying whether Python itself is available or up-to-date on the platform. Nathaniel Smith has just proposed a PEP to do just that, PEP 711, and we'll dive into it with him next. This is Talk Python to Me, episode 412, recorded April 18th, 2023. Welcome to Talk Python to Me, a weekly podcast on Python. This is your host, Michael Kennedy. Follow me on Mastodon, where I'm at mkennedy, and follow the podcast using at TalkPython, both on bostodon.org. Be careful with impersonating accounts on other instances. There are many. Keep up with the show and listen to over seven years of past episodes at talkpython.fm. We've started streaming most of our episodes live on YouTube. Subscribe to our YouTube channel over at talkpython.fm YouTube to get notified about upcoming shows and be part of that episode. This episode is brought to you by Sentry and us over at TalkPython Training. Please check out what we're both offering during our segments. It really helps support the show. Nathaniel, welcome back to Talk Python to Me. How's it going? It's going real well. It's going real well. We're on the eve of the eve of PyCon. How about that? Eve square. Okay, yeah. <laughs> I don't know how many eve. Maybe it's a third, the eve to the third, but we're, we're very near PyCon. I'm, I'm pretty excited. Something, I, yeah. Anti-penultimate eve. Some, I don't <laughs> the know. penultimate okay. eve, perhaps? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I suspect a lot of people will be listening to this show on their way to PyCon. So if you are, awesome. Come say hello to me. I'm going to be doing some live shows, some Ask Me Anything, some various other things. Are you going to be at PyCon this year? Uh, I'm not. I'm not, unfortunately. So they're going to have to just shoot you a message on Twitter or uh, on uh, Mastodon or something like that, right? Uh, yeah, I, I'm easy to find. <laughs> GitHub, email, whatever. Yeah. Cool. Well, um, everyone going to PyCon, hope you have a great time and do come say hi. And with that, you know, we're going to be talking about this project, this new PEP about distributing Python itself, kind of like you distribute Python packages, but a little bit more. Why not? I mean, it seems pretty reasonable to me. And I'm super super excited to see work in this area because Python is so strong in so many areas and there's just a couple of like really big gaps that other technologies have nailed so well. Two of them that I see that are, are super significant is like, hey, Michael, I want to build a mobile app. How do I do that in Python? Or I want to build a desktop app. How do I do that in Python? I'm like, I'm not sure. I, I'm, not, I'm not sure you should even think about doing like desktop, maybe mobile. I mean, Kivi is great, but it's not like a general purpose UI toolkit. And so that's the one. The other is, hey, I have an application. I want to give it to someone who is not a developer and have them run it, <laughs> right? And, and there are some tools that, that address that. But one of them is just like, well, how do they get Python at all? And your project, your PEP, and some of the ideas relate specifically to how do we make it easier to get a pre-built non-admin, not install for the whole system, Python for somebody so they can run an app or even for developers, right? Um, yeah. I mean, in fact, I mean, I'm a developer, so that, that's kind of in some ways the original use case, you know, scratch your yeah, image of course. and all that, right? Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's just, it's a very general um, capability, I think, once you have it. Um, it. So yeah, I mean, the motivation there is basically like, you know, there are lots and lots of ways to get Python, right? 
You can get it from you know the Windows Store. It comes with on your, pre-installed on your Mac, but not a very good one. No. Yeah, not um, quite. Sort of. <laughs> there's you know, but there's also Homebrew or PyEnv or your Linux distro has it, and you can you know get get it through Conda. And if you download Blender, oh, there's secretly a Python inside. You know, like it's just you know, there's just so many different ways um, to do it, um, and that's great. You know, like it's good to have all these options. They also are different use cases. But it's sort of silly that, um, you know, it's obviously it's, you know, it's flexible. There's lots of ways to do it, um, but there's no way to just be like, okay, like I just want a zip file that has Python in it. And it's like a standard way that's like supported and, you know, kind of we all use so we can all sort of share benefits and improvements and all of that. Um, so that's kind of the key, you know, the, the PEP is not that innovative in terms of what it's actually you know, doing, right? It's, it's a zip file with Python in it. Um, but it's just sort of trying to do kind of the logistics of like, okay, but like, let's all agree on how we're going to put it on PyPI. Let's, you know, have tags and stuff so tools can figure out what they're looking at and do stuff automatically. And I think that unlocks a lot of use cases, just that one simple change. I think it does as well. I mean, your abstract is one of the more concise ones, I would say. <laughs> sure, yeah. <laughs> tell, tell people about the abstract here. Uh, yeah, the abstract on the PEP is, uh, it's, um, quote, like wheels, but instead of a pre-built Python package, it's a pre-built Python interpreter. Um, that is the full abstract. I figure that basically, you know, tells people what they need to know. Yeah. So the idea is kind of like you would say pip install request. You might say pip install Python 3.11, except for that you can't use the word pip because pip is built on Python. And so you need Python to run. I mean... It's a little bit circular there. So you kind of need something outside of Python. But you know, conceptually, it's I have these things I need to run my app. I need request, SQL Alchemy, and Beautiful Soup. I also need Python 3.11. So those are my dependencies. Give me that, right? And I mean, you could even imagine potentially pip install Python 3.11 working, I suppose. Like you would need a Python, some Python to run pip. But once you have that, then it's probably still convenient to be able to say, okay, actually, shoot, so I got this bug report saying in 3.11.2 specifically, there's some issue, and I'm not sure if I can reproduce it. You know, like being able to just grab that in one command, pretty useful. Um, but that said, you know, yeah, it's not necessarily, um, PIP isn't necessarily the target. Um, I've been working on uh, some stuff there as well. <laughs> I don't know if yeah, you want to get into yeah. that. Or yeah, we'll, we'll definitely uh, get into it. We'll definitely get into it. I think, you know, you, you need something a little bit on the outside. And I think ideally it doesn't depend on Python being on the system because that, it would be perfectly useful for it to depend on Python. And this gives you a different version. This gives you a way to quickly toggle between these versions and these different setups. But if you could omit that dependency on Python, then all of a sudden you give a way to give it to people who are not developers and use cases where it's not just, I already have Python and I need to do it. Maybe you're a developer, but you're not a Python developer. Should you have to manage your own Python installation so that you can use you know, something that needs Python to run against your source code, right? That is not Python. So there's, there's a lot of scenarios where I think it gets unlocked if you use a different foundation. Yeah, I mean, some of the one of the audiences definitely have in mind here is like, you know, people with like taking their very first ever programming course on the first day of class. Like right now, it's pretty awkward that you're like, okay, well, first you have to go to python.org and then click through here and click there and download that. Oh, wait, no, not that version. Right. Um, oh, did you forget to check to put in your path? Oh, dear. Hold on. Yeah. And oh, no, do you use the Pi launcher? Are you on Windows? Are you like, it was just, it's this extra fiddliness. Um, and, you know, it's funny, we've spent all this effort in the last few years kind of getting wheels to the point where they can just work, 
right? You can just, you know, pip install NumPy and it works everywhere, you know, stuff like that. But Python itself isn't there yet. Um, another uh, use case, I've sort of maybe my primary use case um, sort of audience I have in mind is, right, I develop um, Python packages and as open source and distributed on PyPI, um, stuff like Trio. Um, and so I have the problem of, you know, I want to be welcoming to new contributors, right? I want to, you know, bring them in, get them started first. Uh, quickly, they're volunteers, so like I don't want them like faffing around and struggling and getting stuck trying to just like run the tests or anything like that, right? Um, like both, that's just a waste of their time. It's like kind of rude and inconsiderate, um, and it's also you know there's likely they'll just give up, you know, if it's just a casual like you know they aren't really invested yet. It's just something they're doing for fun or out of interest. Um, you know, I really want to you know make that easy for them, um, and so part of the vision here is like you know be able to say, oh yeah, so you check out. Trio, you know, here you know, type this git clone command, and then you you know you have you know this some kind of Python management tool installed, and you type that tool, you know, run tests, and it makes sure you get the right version of Python and set up the environment correctly, and then it, it executes it for you, and it knows what tests are, how to run the tests in this project, as it looks at I don't know pyproject.toml or whatever, right? Um, and so just sort of capturing all, you know, we have all those pieces, but we don't really have anything that kind of brings them all together into that, like, just type one thing, that's it, it's going, you know, and it just yeah, We don't have many, we honestly don't have many tools that are outside looking in in Python. So much of our tooling in our infrastructure is you have Python, now, now you start yeah. the tools, now you install yeah. it, now you install Black or or Rough or other Yeah, other there's just this kind of very old assumption, which, I mean, it made sense, like, 10, 15, 20 years ago, where sort of everything was sort of installed manually. And of course, you have, you're going to go through some work to like get it set up with Python. It's the foundation of your whole environment. Um, and then you know, kind of we add stuff to make it easier on top of that. But kind of, I think it's time to kind of go back and re reevaluate that sort of foundational assumption. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned Trio. I know before we dive too much further in, I want to give you a chance to kind of... Uh, Oh, <laughs> let, let the folks know what you're up to. Um, we'll talk about Trio at the end if we got time. But, you know, what have you been up to since June 29th, 2018, you know, five yeah. years ago, roughly? Right, last time I was on the podcast. Yeah, right? last time um, I was on the show. Yeah. Um, wow. That was really early in Trio's life, I guess, actually. Um, so, I mean, I've had a lot of just, you know, real life um, has happened. Um, been, I was, you know, sick for a while and trying to kind of, get back on my feet, um, did some consulting, um, just started a new job. So that's kind of, you know, a lot of distractions, but, um, also, you know, yeah, I think, uh, trio is still, uh, you know, I still like it a lot. <laughs> um, it's definitely had more influence. Actually, had I even published the structure concurrency blog post then? I don't remember. I feel like it sounds familiar to me, even though it's been five years, it does sound familiar. So I do think so, but what has happened since then certainly is Python has seen some of these ideas and adopted them, right? Like, like yeah, so, 311's uh, concurrency stuff. Yeah. So there's been a, like sort of the, the influence has got a lot further than I ever expected, um, both actually in other languages. So yeah, like Swift and um, Kotlin and, you know, have all kind of adopted ideas from here. Uh, Java apparently is making some big changes um, coming up soon with a whole new concurrency setup. And they're like, Saying like, yeah, we're basing it on that Nathaniel Smith's random blog post. It's kind of like, okay, yeah, oh, sure, okay, amazing, <laughs> okay, you know, it's yeah, very flattering. <laughs> um, but yeah, 
Um, and yes, also um, in the Python itself, it's sort of complicated because we it's sort of this awkward situation where there's asyncio that's in the standard library, and then there's my sort of competing thing, Trio, which yeah, we I guess we should say Trio is an async library for Python um, that's you know portable. It's sort of you know an alternative to async.io. There are some tools to kind of let you use both at once, but um, it's not a library for async.io. It's its own thing, um, and so. You know, like obviously, we all wish there was just one obvious choice. Um, I kind of looked, you know, but asyncio is also in this very difficult position, being in the standard library um, and being sort of built up over time, and a lot of it was designed before we even had stuff like async await. Um, so there's just a lot of machinery in there that's kind of already committed to other ways of doing things, and it's very hard to change. And Trio was sort of like, well, look, we have all these modern things, add some new ideas coming in, like structured concurrency is a better way to kind of um, Write your write concurrent programs, um, and it was able since it had a clean slate to like really you know do that all from the start and be much simpler. Um, so that was important, you know, to have it be its own thing just so we could you know work that stuff out. Then there's a question of okay, now what? Do we all switch to Trio? Do we move it back into AsyncIO? Do they both continue? That's um, been a debate for some really yeah. popular things. I think that is interesting. A lot of people say, well, why is Library X, which everyone uses. Why is that not built into Python? Why do I need to pip install it? And a lot of times the answer is because making it part of Python will harm its ability to innovate and change, right? It'll slow it way down. Yeah. Like there was a whole debate some years ago about like, you know, like we all know the HTTP client in Python, your lib or whatever, is just really bad. You should just never use it. And it's broken a lot of ways. Like it's just, you just don't use it. Um, but we still ship it because it would be too disruptive to take it out. That's also why we can't change it. There's just too much code out there depending on all the weird quirks. Um, and we don't want to ship something else because then it'll end up being URL like URL lib, you know, five years later. Um, so we, you know, it was questioning like, should we put requests in the standard library or URL lib three or what, you know, one of these. Um, and it's just, you know, then you can't ship security fixes. You can't improve your API. You can't, you know, so, as we've gotten better at packaging also, it's taken some of the um, pressure off the standard library to be all things to all people. This portion of Talk Python to Me is brought to you by CodeCov from Sentry. Have you heard about CodeCov? They are the leading code coverage tool on the market, and they just joined Sentry, the error tracking and performance monitoring company that you know and love. CodeCov is the all-in-one code coverage reporting solution for any test suite, giving developers actionable insights to deploy reliable code with confidence. CodeCov is easy to set up. If you are already both a CodeCov and Sentry user, GitHub integration is even enabled automatically for you. You'll get coverage insights directly in your workflows. Code coverage pull request comments allow you to quickly analyze your PR's coverage and risk without leaving your workflow. It'll reduce the guesswork. You set up customizable quality gates and let your continuous integration do the rest. And CodeCov identifies where tests can help you avoid errors in production through their Sentry integration. If an error does occur, you'll even see code coverage details directly in your stack traces. So you can see the untested, partially or fully covered code that may be causing errors to help you fix your tests to avoid similar errors happening in the future. Get started for free or take advantage of Sentry's promo pricing where with a Sentry team or business plan, you can get your first five pro CodeCov seats for just $29 a month. That's a 40% savings. Visit talkpython.fm slash Sentry to get started. 
Remember to use the code TalkPython to let them know you came from us. It really does help support the show. That's talkpython.fm slash S-E-N-T-R-Y, Sentry, and the code TalkPython. Thank you to Sentry and CodeCov for supporting the show. When the standard library first came into existence, there was no PyPI and there was no package. Like it had to come with it because <laughs> how yeah. else are you going to get a hunt it <laughs> right. down on Usenet and on, you know, base 64 and code it, but it's like, what are you going to do? <laughs> yeah. Or I mean, maybe find it, you know, you download, I don't know, Twisted or something like from an FTP site. Yeah. Yeah. Or an FTP to, site or something like that. Unpack sure. it and have to put it in your pipe. Like it was all totally, yeah. St- you know, s- knocking rocks together. <laughs> to <laughs> sharpen sticks. Flint and it creates a spark. Yeah. Yeah. yeah uh, like, so I think the, the motivations and the, the decisions, the way you might lean in making those decisions are really different now. Like I would, even though we're already far down the road and making changes is breaking and doesn't make sense, it might make sense to ship less in the standard library, quite a bit less, and just say, oh, you're going to pip install some meta package that, ex- that explodes out some section. I'm going to pip install the collections area, boom, and now I got a bunch more. Potentially, who knows? One thing I'd really like to see um, as a possible sort of future there is moving some of the standard library into wheels that are installed by default. Yes, exactly. Yes. So you get so you know that's sort of exactly. it's sort of this halfway house, right? Where you know it's still the case you download Python, install it, they're there. So we don't just like break everyone in the world who just assumes they're there. Um, but then it kind of gives us that both of you know the long term. If it's like we want to get rid of it, it kind of gives us or push it out to PyPI or just remove it entirely, um, then it gives us kind of a way to do that more gradually. Um, but also for you know, libraries like Async.io that are big and complex and really you know, would benefit from being able to have their own release cadence and bug fixes and deprecation cycles and all of that, then it's like, yeah, it still ships with Python, but then you can pip upgrade it. You know, you're not stuck with that exact version um, that could only change when a whole new Python release comes out and you have to take all those changes together at once. Yeah, I, I, I've absolutely had this thought, and I, I think it is—it's a really elegant solution because, on one hand, it lets the core developers focus more on an, the, the true essence of Python, and it lets it be used in more locations, right? Think PyScript, for example, or MicroPython, right? It might mm-hmm. be that you sure. can create a, a central core that is exactly the same on all of these. You don't have to consider, like, of course, this is what runs; it runs everywhere. But you still get that backwards compatibility and you get the ability to say, actually, I, I want the newest version of AsyncIO because I want this more high-performance background worker or something. Yeah. Or even just, I mean, for smaller, like, you know, I don't want the newest version of AsyncIO because, like, I don't know if it works, but I want to de- install in a Scratch environment this, like, development version so I can try it out and give them feedback before they, you know, really make the release and set the API in stone. And again, like right now, like you'd have to go build your own Python and it's like, it's just kind of a whole thing, right? You can't just do install dash dash pre. Right, exactly. <laughs> it's definitely a more of a barrier for people who are just casually wanting to test stuff out. You got to be pretty committed to getting Python 3.12, alpha 6 or whatever we're at, right? I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Indeed. Okay, uh, very cool. Well, maybe we'll come back and dive into Tree a little bit more, but yeah. And so what, do you, what are you doing these days? You talked about doing a little consulting and... Um, well, yeah. Well, so I just started at um, a new job uh, just like last week, week before, I guess. Yeah. It's been less than two weeks. Exciting. Um, yeah. yeah um, I'm working at Anthropic, um, which I don't know if anyone's heard of. It's still somewhat stealthy, but um, 
It's sort of, it's, uh, I, yeah, I mean, quickly changing. I don't know the exact status currently. Um, but yeah, so my understanding of the background here is that um, there's actually the team at OpenAI who trained GPT-3. Um, just sort of, you know, sat down together and thought, you know, decided they really wanted to do more of like a pure focus on like interpretability and safety. Like, how do you get these models? Like, how do you know what these models are actually going to do? And how do you get them to do what you want instead of kind of, you know, stuff like making things up or just, you know, we, we've all kind of got the scene now how these large language models can go just all over the place, do all kinds of strange things. Um, and so, and they yeah, decided- even one of them being sued for yeah. slander, I believe. Uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody in the UK, I think. Yeah. Well, yeah, there's definitely, there's one that just like, if you ask the model, like, you know, can you give me some advantages of like, you know, problems with sexual harassment in law schools? And it just picks like five real law professors and makes up stuff. Like it's really, really <laughs> bad. Yeah. <laughs> and it like cites sources that are all made up. Like it's, you know, like they, you know, they're just, they're very powerful, but also not well understood or how to like kind of make them useful and safe. Just a little bit of devil's advocate though. They are incredibly powerful and they are incredibly capable. And that's, I think part of the danger is you're like, Oh my God, it knows this. Oh my gosh. It it understood (laughs) all of that. And I ask it. So the fifth thing it says, you're like, well, at this point I'm convinced and it really is on. And then maybe that's the made up one. And I think that's the dangers because it's actually it's almost an uncanny valley. It's close enough to write that you're like, okay, this thing's right. It knows. Yeah. So yeah. So personally, like I'm still kind of up in the air on how, like how impactful they'll be, where the impact will be. Like I think there's just a lot of open questions. Um, you haven't but, bought a farm, like a, a goat farm in the woods because you just give them technologies <laughs> no, like a blowout now. Okay. All yeah. right. Um, but um, I guess I do have stock options now, apparently. Or I will at some point if they vest. So I guess that's the other route. Um, but no, but anyway, um, so I was just saying, so yeah, so um, Anthropic's just interesting company where, you know, you actually get to play with some of those big models internally. They're kind of working on releasing products now. Um, but it's also been kind of just a really interesting to kind of get the sense internally of like, it's really kind of this like research culture, um, which is appealing to me. I'm sort of coming out of academia of a lot of like numerics background. Um, and what's also is interesting is that part of the reason um, we kind of, you know, connected is that apparently, you know, it turns out a ton of their internal infrastructure runs on Trio. Um, so um, they're, you know, partly hired me to support that um, and are actually giving me time to work on open source um, paid time. Um, so actually they are, uh, funding this PEP 711, uh, you know, Python binary stuff, though they don't know it yet. Um, now they do. Yeah. 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 They listen <laughs> no, to the podcast. That's great. That's really, that's really cool. It looks like yeah. uh, an interesting area to be working. I agree that the research oriented places, they are a fun area to work, right? You're not. Yeah. And there's just a lot of flexibility kind of, you know, like it's clear this stuff is going to have effects, <laughs> which effects and how big and all that, I don't know. But, you know, being at ground zero is, you know, it's exciting. It's really exciting. Yeah. And a lot it of chance is. to maybe have some impact. So cool. All right. Let's dive into the PIP. The PIP. The PEP. The PEP. That is okay. it's not it's not quite PIP, but it's kind of like PIP. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So we talked a little bit about the motivation. Uh, we talked a little bit about what it is. Um, maybe, maybe tell us a bit about the spec. Like what is the PEP actually say? Uh, what is it actually trying to deliver? And we can talk about like the use cases and yeah. Some um, of the tools for it and so on later. Yeah. I mean, and so, 
like I said, you know, that the abstract deals like wheels, but it's an interpreter instead of a package. Um, that's partly just sort of a tagline of like how you use it, but it's actually also a lot about how the actual spec is written. Um, it's just sort of a, like, well, um, you know, we, we've done a ton of work over the last, you know, five, 10 years. A lot of people have put a lot of work into making wheels work, right? In terms of like figure out, okay, how do we, you know, have metadata that's usable to like keep track of, you know, which packages are installed and their versions and which ones are compatible. And if for a binary build, like which, systems can you put this on and, you know, all the many Linux work and um, just all of that stuff. And it's just like, well, you know, so we have wheels. We don't need to reinvent the, the wheel again. Um, um, so I'm just sort of taking all of that. Um, so it's just like, okay, you know, it's mostly, it's just a delta against the wheel spec. It's like, okay, in the wheel spec, um, you have, you know, this directory for metadata. I have, you know, that same directory, but I call this calling these Python binaries, PyBys. Um, just to have sort of a, a short name, you can stick in a prefix, or sorry, in a, in a file extension. Yeah, pybi. Um, yes. yes. Dot pybi. I like it's, it. It's, yeah, the pypy the interpreter and pypi the um, package uh, <laughs> repository were confusing enough, so I thought I'd add another near homonym to the uh, <laughs> well, pypy. It's pybi. Yeah, gotcha. yeah. You know. Um, uh, anyway. Um, but so, yeah, so like, but they look like, you know, the file names look like wheels, like, you know, something like, you know, C Python dash version dash many Linux 217.pybi. Um, they context looks like wheels. They're basically just zip files. There's some, you know, instead of a dot dist info directory, you have a pyby info directory and it has a metadata file that's in the same format as wheel metadata files with for the name and version and, you know, description, all that stuff. Um, there, there are a few tweaks, uh, basically just what, you know, you need specifically for, um, interpreters. Um, so, um, okay. So like one thing that makes it a lot simpler is that, um, for an, there's only one interpreter in a Python environment, right? Whereas wheels are kind of designed to be flexible and be installed into different kind of different kinds of Python environments with different layouts. Um, a PyBy, um, is just like, it's just a raw set of files. You unzip it. That's it. You're done. Uh, where wheels, there's like, well, okay, if you you want to put this in site packages, so you have to go find that. Whereas this goes in the bin directory, so you have to go find that and do the special, you know. So that part's just, you know, not relevant. Uh, leave that out. Um, there's some uh, slight, you know, we have to support symlinks, uh, which wheels don't. Uh, mostly just because there's never been a big compelling reason. What's For that? the Windows folks out there, maybe, and others who uh, yeah. pay what, what the heck are symlinks? Yeah. Okay. Well, so yeah, symlink is a classic Unix concept. The Windows does have them too now, I guess, where it's like a special magic file that um, instead of having like its actual contents, it just lists says, go look at this other lo location on the file system for my content. Right. Um, it's like a, like an app shortcut, but yeah, for but like, programs, not for UI. Yeah. Well, clicking. like built into the file system. Though. Yes, exactly. So you try so to open just, it, it, it goes yeah. to the other one. Yeah. yeah the, the, the operating system automatically opens that other file for you. Uh, but you could also like look at, you know, if you, you can like say like, can you show me the symlink and like, it'll tell you about it if you ask, but if you don't, then it just, you know, magically works. And it's mostly, um, it's just, it turns out that traditionally uh, Unix pythons tend to use these uh, both for things like you'll, you know, in the, your bin directory, you'll have the Python executable. And then you'll also have Python three as a symlink to Python and Python 3.11 is a symlink to Python three. And so, you know, wanted to preserve that. 
Um, and also, it turns out on macOS, um, they have this very specific kind of layout they want with like framework. Like, I don't really understand it in detail, but like, there's sort of like a how a macOS app is supposed to be structured, and that it, it turns out to involve symlinks. So we just, you know, we just have to support. Them. Um, that said, I mean, the way we support them is like it turns out there's a standard way to put them in zips. So I say let's do that. You know, <laughs> like again, really trying to keep this as boring as possible. You know, I did know. You um, and then like the last thing, file. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's it's an extension from the InfoZip folks, but then it's become I don't know. Zip's a strange format. It's kind of like an oral tradition, as much as like an actual like specified format. But there's an entire you know. documentary on Zip, and um, I believe oh, really? the guy who came up with it. There's yeah, it's even controversial in its early days. It's it's nuts, but yeah, it's it <laughs> yeah. seems to have won the compression yeah. de facto standard these days for the most. Yeah, part. it's definitely got trade offs, but it's just in terms of. It's just really useful. It's just a thing that everyone, everything could understand. It's just, it's just so compatible, and it's also convenient that you can do random access, unlike some of the alternatives. You can just, you can pull out one file from the middle if you want to. The fact that anyone can open it is so much better than it might save one more percent. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Cool. Okay, so we've got these. Basically, the pi by file. Is the zip file, is that basically the entire interpreter just kind of bundled into a zip file? Like, what's the deal yeah. there? Yeah. Okay. I mean, it's just literally like, you know, you install Python into a certain directory and then you take that directory and you put it in a zip file. There's a little bit of tweaking to like make sure it's self contained and you can move it in a portable, portable, relocatable, I guess is a better word. Yeah. That it, so sometimes if you just install Python regularly, it's kind of will have hard coded. I know that I'm at this particular position on the file system. And so I need to make sure we don't do that. And also to make it self-contained, it's like the um, same thing we do with wheels. Like you have to vendor some libraries, right? If it wants to use readline as a library to um, for like in the REPL to be able to like edit your line as you're typing it, then, you know, we can't just assume it's on the system. Um, we have to include that inside the PyBy. Um, so, and, but again, like this is stuff we've all already dealt with with wheels. There's tools for doing it. We understand how to do it. And I'm just reusing those tools. Um, so, so when I, if I were to run a Python application delivered by one of these PyBys, does it have to unzip the contents into a location and then run it there? Or can it just run it straight out of memory? Or what, um, how does that work? Well, so by itself, the format, I mean, it's just a zip file, right? So you can do what you can, with it what you can do with a zip file, which, I mean, is not much on its own. You need some software to work with it, right? Um, now, that said, I think... So yeah, so like if you just were starting with nothing and you're like, I just I have a URL to some pi, a PyBy and I want to to use it, then you'd have to download it, run a zip tool, and then you'd have a you could go into that directory. It's a Python environment. You know, you could run pip in there or whatever. Um, that said, I think this is a really useful building block for tools that want to go beyond that. So things like delivering a pre-built application that you can just run without unpacking. Like there are various tools to do that, like PyOxidizer, uh, Py to App. I don't know. There's a ton of them, actually. I'm probably forgetting like 10 more. Yeah, um, the ones that come to mind for me are PyDoAmp, PyInstaller, and PyOxidizer, yeah. for sure. PyOxidizer yeah. being the newest uh, of them. Yes. But, yeah. Oxidizer because it involves Rust somehow. <laughs> all all it's the part of the yes. involve Rust. Yes. Uh, so, um, but yeah, so those, those tools that it's really useful to be able to say, okay, like, I'm going to do some clever thing to like set up, I don't know, a self-extracting executable or 
whatever it is they do for their distribution mechanism. I'm going to create an installer program. I'm going to whatever it is, but you still need an actual Python <laughs> to put into that, <laughs> right? Um, and so having a, a straightforward way where it's okay, that's not their problem anymore to figure out how to find a Python and get it built and working for the sy target system. So they can just say, okay, there's I can just like grab, you know, okay, yeah, you want to target, you know, many Linux, cool. I'll just go grab the right Python. It's already there. I know it works. And now I can take the files out of this PyBI and do whatever I want with them. I can pack them into my installer or do clever things to make them usable out of memory or whatever. Um, and th they can focus on that part instead of just the, like, how do you even get a Python? <laughs> yeah. Um, or, or how do you, once find yourself in the wrong Python, get the right Python? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Even, yeah. That's a, I, I don't know if that's trickier or less tricky, right? It's one thing to say, dear user, go get Python. You need that. It's another thing to say, go upgrade your Python and hope you don't break something, you know, I think. Yeah, well, but also that's part of the point of these being self-contained is, um, so, I mean, this is one of the more trivial use cases, right? But right now we all use virtual ends and mostly that's fine. But also sometimes, you know, they can get, you know, janky stuff could happen. Like, you know, you're on Linux, you do an apt upgrade and now your system Python's change and all the virtual ends that were based on it are broken now yeah. because it like had some kind of dependence on that exact binary. Um, now, I was saying you would always want to do this, but at least it's nice to have the option. You could say, okay, instead of making virtual ends, I'm just going to make real ends. They're all just going to be, I'm just going to drop a new copy of Python in each environment. And that way I just, it's totally self-contained. I know exactly what I have. It upgrades when I decide to upgrade it. Um, and it's just, you know, it's a nice, it's a nice option, right? Sometimes to have that. Um, and, and also it, it gives you that total isolation, right? So you, you, then we were just saying about that issue of like, oh, I wanted to use this. So I went and install, upgraded my Python, but now that other thing I was already using broke because they're using the same Python. It's like very easy to say, no, just give them different Pythons, you know? There's not that much that changes over time. That's a backwards breaking sort of thing. I mean, two to three, but I think that's kind yeah. of, let's put oh, yeah, that yeah. past. But that's a but whole I did, well, yeah. but I did recently, uh, I was working with MongoDB using Beanie, which was using Motor, which was using the at async or at coroutine decorator, which was removed uh, in 3.11 right. or 3.10, yes. one of those recent upgrades. Yeah. And it had been dep deprecated forever. The people at MongoDB said, we don't care. We're just going to leave it. Who wants to put the word async in front of my method? That's tricky. <laughs> or, I mean, they just probably yeah. don't pay attention. Yeah. And it, my, my code wouldn't work. I'm like, why doesn't this work? Oh, the thing I depend on, which the thing it depends on, that that thing needed less than 310 or whatever, 310 yeah. or 311, whatever. But yeah, and now we're back to real... the struggles to yeah, and <laughs> adapt so, without breaking it. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, stuff like this yeah, would... Stuff it does happen, you know. And, and this kind of isolation gives you 100% confidence to say, I'm going to make this new app. We're going to try running this app on, on this in production, and it's not going to hurt anything. And I don't need Docker. And you can say, or you could use say, I'm going to you know use this exact point version uh, in development. And then I'm going to take that and build it, create my, use that to create my Docker image. Like I don't need the like pre-built Docker stuff. I could just grab Python from PyPI and I know it's the exact same version everyone else is using built by the python.org folks. Hopefully, you know, we're not there yet, but like that's kind of the, where that's we're okay. trying that's to get That's why a, a pep and right. not something on GitHub, right? Yeah, <laughs> sure. Well, it has been on GitHub for a while, but you know, I have time. Yeah, to kind yeah. Of so move it maybe it's, it's worth jumping yeah. over that. But before we do two questions, maybe. Yeah. Sure. Uh, two top level questions anyway. So this is about the, uh, the concept of kind of like pip install Python 3.11 or 10 beta 2 or whatever. Whatever it is, yeah. Yeah. Does that, is there a way to say, and these three packages off of PyPI? 
Like, can I take and kind of bring right. a virtual environment effectively along with me with what you're doing so far? So Pi BI is, again, by themselves, I mean, it's just an archive format, right? A package format. It doesn't do anything. That said, um, obviously, yeah, part of what we want is for these to be useful for things like, you know, building environments that have other packages in them and stuff. Um, so that's the one other thing I didn't, uh, I you know, forgot to mention about um, defining the format. Probably the most interesting part, actually, is that we do add some new uh, static metadata that we put into the package. And kind of the motivation there is that uh, we're I try to figure out, okay, what do I need to know in order to install wheels into this Python without running it, right? Because right now, right, like pip assumes that it's running on the Python it's installing into. So anytime it wonders like, you know, okay, like what ABIs does this Python support and what version is it, what platform am I on? It can just ask the interpreter it's running on, right? And it's like, okay, well, it would be really nice if you didn't have to do that both for like efficiency, like you want to be able to, you know, figure out which, you know, have your like installer, your resolver, figure out which versions of everything it wants uh, without having to like download and run multiple versions of Python and stuff. Like you'd really like to avoid that. Um, it's also things like I want to build a cross, I want to build, you know, release um, distributions for, um, you know, Mac OS, but I'm on Windows or vice versa. Um, or I just want to, you know, I, I'm developing on, I'm developing my package like Trio on Linux personally, but I would like it that when I lock my, you know, version, so I know all my, you know, collaborators are using the same versions, that we figure out locks that also work on Windows and Mac OS. And I can't just trivial run that, all those Pythons, you know, from one resolver because it's not running on all three at once. Um, and we, you know, and Python packaging does have, the ability to like have different dependencies on different OSs and, you know, it gets kind of, you know, can get very kind of complicated to figure out like which packages do I need where. Um, and so I want to put a bunch of metadata into the PyBI, like all the stuff you need to solve those problems. Um, so yeah, so the PyBI itself, I think normally they won't ship with any packages. Maybe again, <laughs> call back, uh, maybe in the future, we'll start moving some of the standard library into wheels that are pre-installed. You sure. can do that. Um, but um I'm guessing, like you know, for now it'll they'll mostly just be you know a plain vanilla Python install. But then you could take that, you could take some wheels, bundle them all together into a new archive if you want, or yeah, again, whatever you want to do with it, stick it in a Docker image, whatever. It's a step towards, but not necessarily trying to propose an entire solution of here is the the interpreter and all the dependencies and the code and just run it as if it was it had no no dependency on your system. Just treat it as like a, a .exe or a .app. I can just double-click. Yeah, I mean, it makes that a lot easier than it is, yes. right? Right. Like right now, first step is just to figure out like how do I even build a Python that'll work like that? And that is like some arcane dark knowledge written on a tome in, you know, black ink on black paper and a black tomb you have to go <laughs> find or something. Like, you know, it's just... Yeah, it's not easy. Um, and so just having the ability to say like, yeah, just <laughs> grab this file, unzip it, drop some wheels in it, zip it up again. Now that's a package you can drop, you can hand to someone and it'll work on their system. You know, like that's, that makes it a lot more accessible. Um, sure. It's not the thing I most personally, like I'm not immediately going to go build that one last extra tool, but I bet someone will. <laughs> yeah, I, I can imagine yeah. someone will for sure. This portion of Talk Python Me is brought to you by us over at Talk Python Training with our courses. And I want to tell you about a brand new one that I'm super excited about. Python web apps that fly with CDNs. 
If you have a Python web app, you want it to go super fast. Static resources turn out to be a huge portion of that equation. Leveraging a CDN could save you up to 75% of your server load and make your app way faster for your users. And this course is a step-by-step -step guide on how to do it. And using a CDN to make your Python apps faster is way easier than you think. So if you've got a Python web app and you would like to have it scaled out globally, if you'd like to have your users have a much better experience and maybe even save some money on server hosting and bandwidth, check out this course over at talkpython.fm slash courses. It'll be right up there at the top. And of course, the link will be in your show notes. Thank you to everyone who's taken one of our courses. It really helps support the podcast. Now back to the show. My next question is not what on our, our shared screen here, but is what impact do you think this would have on PyPI? First of all, do you see PyPI, the way the, the CDN that delivers packages like Trio and wheels like Trio, do you see that as the same channel through which CPython 3.11 is delivered? Um, yeah. I mean, so I, I would like these to literally be like you go to PyPI slash project slash CPython. It says like, here's the latest release. And you click on downloads and it shows you the, yeah, I'd like it to just literally be stuff you upload to PyPI. Right. And, and the when you pip install from there, it figures out the platform to pick from and it downloads that wheel and off it goes, right? Um, do you think that that would add like a huge burden to the, the amount of traffic or do you think it would be uh, okay? No. Um, I mean, how, how large are these things? we'll have to see and, you know, adapt, but um, Python itself, it's like, uh, shoot, I, it's tens of megabytes. Um, okay, cool. So There's plenty of other packages. There are a lot of much bigger, you know, like go look at TensorFlow or something. <laughs> um, <laughs> there are hundreds of megabyte packages on Python that are very popular. Um, also, I mean, Python.org downloads go through the same CDN anyway. It's just sort of different infrastructure on the back end, but it's still fastly serving it and donating the bandwidth. Um, so, you know, in that regard, I wouldn't expect much change. Um, and also just, you know, like people tend to install, you know, wheels more often than they install Python, right? Again, it's hard to know sort of the second order effects. Like maybe virtual lens will be less popular in favor of full lens if this takes off. Um, and then yeah, people start installing Python of, yeah. more than they do now. But still, nonetheless, I don't think it's, you know, a huge, um, I, don't, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't anticipate it being a huge um, change. And if it, you know, it turns out to be a problem, then, you know, we can kind of figure, address it then, you know. <laughs> Um, well, get, you could also do, uh, to a large degree, you could do things like pip does already that caches. You could just cache the, the C Python wheel, the PyBI, into the user profile, and the second, third, fourth time you get it, it's really the CI systems and all the dockers and all that stuff that don't understand what a cache is or any of those things, right? Yeah. But then, you know, so like if it comes a real problem, then, you know, you go to GitHub and you're like, hey, can we work something out so that, you know, you stick a cache in front of PyPI? Um, and, you know, like stuff like that, like it's not, you know, trivial, but, you know, you could talk to people and solve problems. Like, I don't, certainly I don't think we should, you know, hold back the entire design of like how we distribute Python and make it available because, oh, maybe it'll be too easy and people will use it too much. You know, like, yeah. gotcha. <laughs> like that's a good problem to it. have, right? Yes, exactly. Look, they're using it. This is terrible. <laughs> yeah. Like first, you, you know, make it easy and then figure out how to solve any problems that causes. Don't. Yeah. I think we've more than once solved the problem of, oh my gosh, they're using it. Like Google, Netflix, you name it, you know. Um, think of the benefit though you'll be doing for all the developers, especially those who have Python skills and are looking for a job. I mean, if the popularity of Python by downloads is one thing, if you could like 4X that, we'd all be more demand. Like, look, right. <laughs> really, really downloaded now. 
<laughs> right. Yeah. Just, just go out there and just download it five times in every CI job. Just, you know, exactly. just throw four of them away, but you know, <laughs> just do it a couple of times. Yeah. Just, just show. Right. Yeah. Awesome. Um, the question that you put into the pep here on the screen though, is why not just Conda? And I not being a particularly data focused person, I definitely prefer using PIP over Conda because especially it seems like a lot of the web packages are not as close to update, up to date. You know, there's a latency before it hits Conda and it's like immediately on PIP. That said, there's a bunch of people who are like, I kind of use Conda for this. Um, yeah, and, and right. If you're just like, look, I don't really care about all this. Like I just, you know, I want to run my Jupyter notebooks and I, you know, just need a Python that can do that. And maybe, you know, some NumPy or whatever. Conda solves that really well. And this thing could, you know, I'm working on could also potentially solve that really well. And so it feels duplicative um, to those people. And to them, it is. Um, you know, it doesn't really, you know, they're both two solutions that work, but there is a necessarily reason for them to choose one or the other. Um, but, but this could also be a foundation for the way that Conda provides Python to itself. Maybe. Maybe I don't know. Like, there's a whole other question about how like we could bring Conda and you know PyPI pip that kind of world closer together and interoperate better. But it's sort of that's a whole like you know can of worms, lots of complicated stuff. Um, I don't think this. Well I don't think yeah, this pep itself is going to um, be the thing that makes a big difference there. Um, okay, but it's not an anti-Conda type of thing. No, it's no. Yeah. Well, and so, right. And so, I mean, you can also get it, see a version of this in the pet, but um, like basically the way I think about it is that the key reason why we just like why PyPI is a critical piece of infrastructure that, you know, cannot be replaced by anything else is not because it's um, of its use for end users. I mean, it's great that end users use it and find it helpful and all that, but like that isn't the people who absolutely need it and could not have any replacement. Um, the reason why we just absolutely need it is for package developers, because the way, um, again, you're talking about all those different ways you can get Python, right? And there's all these different ways Python packages get distributed, right? You can brew install Python packages. There's versions, you know, NumPy, a, a patched version of NumPy used to be part of the standard macOS install. Maybe it still is. I don't know. Um, you know, like when you install Blender, there are Python packages in there. Or if you install uh, some game using, um, was it RenPy? Um, <laughs> It's going to have Python packages in there or just, you know, there's just like, there's so many different ways that Python code goes out of the world and gets used in all these different contexts. Um, and if you're developing some upstream library, like, you know, Trio again, or, but, you know, or requests or NumPy or anything, um, then what you absolutely don't want to do is have to maintain a separate distribution for all of those different things. You don't want to have to upload your package to ContaForge and also to Debian and also to Fedora and also to Blender Forge, like, like you just like, that's not, that doesn't make any sense, right? Um, so we need this, you know, and then having every different package maintainer do that, like that just would be terrible, right? We you just would be unworkable. Um, so the critical role that PyPI serves that just nothing else can is it's this intermediation point between package uploaders and package users and including package redistributors. Um, and so, and so, you know, like I, you know, make a release of my package, I upload it to PyPI, and then that's where ContaForge gets it, that's where Debian gets it, that's where, you know, end users get it if they're pulling straight from PyPI, like sort of, it, it fans out from there. And the key difference in terms of design between PIP and Conda 
is that pips, metadata formats, and you know wheels and the metadata and source disks and all that are designed around this abstraction of you have some kind of Python environment, but it could be any of those, right? It could be on different OSs. It could be different, you know, ways of building it. Different layouts, different pieces could be missing, like right, different whatever. Hardware. It could be laid out in all kinds of different ways. I just know that there is some kind of Python environment, and I have the metadata to like figure out how to adapt to how this particular Python environment is put together. Um, and Conda, on the other hand, is one of these sort of downstream systems. It's, it can, the reason people like love it and like data science, right, is because it's a full-fledged, like arbitrary application distribution thing, right? You can install random, you know, C libraries and, you know, you can install R and R packages. Like, like it's just, it's got, you know, compilers that are all there in the one thing. But because of that, it isn't have this abstraction of, oh, I can handle any Python environment. A Conda package of a Python package is set up to install in a Conda Python that's laid out in a, the way a Conda environment is laid out in the way that using the libraries a Conda library has, right? And so it doesn't have that flexibility. If you just release something for Conda, then it's great for Conda, but it's not you know usable to Debian and Homebrew and all of those other folks. Um, and so, like, sort of, that's the key thing that PyPI does, right? Is like it has that abstraction that lets you. Um, you kind of have the Python packaging ecosystem of all those packages and their dependencies on each other. And then you kind of project it down into each of these more specific uh, specialized packaging systems, right? Um, and then also because, you know, as a, that's the, right, that's the other thing as a package maintainer, I don't just write my package and upload it. Like I'm also using all by other, you know, all the other open source maintainers work as I do it. We're all working together, right? And I'm depending on their work and they're depending on mine. Um, and so I need to be able to say like, okay, you know, my package needs those three other packages and here are the versions and I need to be able to download, you know, create an environment with those versions and test it before I upload my package to PyPI. And so again, all that work has to happen at that higher abstraction level. Like you can't just say, I'm going to take the latest version from Conda and test against it because that's not necessarily the version that other packet, you know, other people will get where you take the versions from PyPI. Those are like the original ones. I can get exactly, I can have access to anything anyone has ever uploaded um, as soon as they upload it and I can test them all together. And then, you know, if Conda wants to take some curated subset of those or whatever, that's great. Um, that's a really valuable service, but, you know, they kind of need that underlying set of packages to curate. <laughs> and that's yeah, what PyPI is for. Yeah. PyPI is kind of the, the definitive source of truth as the package creator intended it to be. Yeah. Um, and then, so, right. And then of course, yeah, for a lot of end users, it turns out they're just going straight to that without any intermediary um, works great for them. And that's really, really cool. Um, but also, you know, it's not like I don't have anything against people who prefer to go through Debian or Condra or whatever. Um, I think that that's also great, you know, if that works better for you. Um, but for the folks who are, you know, developing, you know, packages to upload or who just, you know, would rather just, you know, get stuff straight from the source, the PyBIs, I think, can solve a lot of problems. That Conda, you know, just it just doesn't address those. It has a different focus. Trying to make it uh, swap over to do that might kill a little bit of what it's <laughs> it's good for, you know? Yeah. Um, all right. Let's let's see. So let's move on to your announcement here. I think. Okay. Right. Yeah. So over on discuss.python.org, when was this? This was January twenty first. So a few this, ago. yeah, a few months ago, you announced. Hi, BI and Posy. And, yes. and Posy is, we talked about this mythical pip that could pip install CPython 3.11. Posy right. is that mythical pip, right? 
yeah, in a sense. Yeah. So yeah, the pip seven eleven, the Pi BI stuff is is just the one one brick in my master plan. Um, so right, because um, yeah, because sort of the, this vision I had in mind, I kind of alluded to earlier, talking about like you know, okay, if somebody does you know Git clone my project, I want them to you'll just run the tests and know that they have the right version of Python and the right version of the dependencies, and just kind of you know, and they know how to run the you know just just do it right, encode all that information um, somewhere. And Posey is sort of my experimental. It's not ready to use, but um, it does have a lot of a lot of stuff working. Um, is my attempt to solve that part of the problem. So yeah. the vision is uh, Posey is a it is a full reimplementation of PIP, you know, the like metadata parsers and um, result dependency resolvers and archive installers and all of that. Uh, except I rewrote it all in Rust, um, as is the style. Um, and but it also um, it's all built around uh, PyBIs, so it is it doesn't. I mean, maybe at some point we'll also start supporting you know VNs or user installed Pythons. But you know, for now, sort of the for the MVP, it's just says like, okay, yeah, you have a PyBI. I will grab that. I will grab packages that are compatible with it. I will arrange them all to run together based on you know. You you just you just say what you need. I turn that into like a lock file. I fetch those packages. I run you know your test script or whatever. Um, and yeah, I mean that 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 is the core idea. Um, and one advantage of being in Rust is that um, it's you know just becomes just so obviously you know it, if you want to hack on it, then you need like a Rust compiler and stuff. But if you just want to use it, then we can you know just take a we can compile it down to a single binary that you just you know upload to wherever. Um, Install it from wherever, and you just you drop it on your system. You run it, and it's self-contained. It can handle everything from there. So the again, thinking of that um, target audience of like beginners, right? You say, okay, install this one program, and now you type, you know, posy run, and oh look, you're in a REPL, and it's like and now internally, of course, they have to go find a, the latest version of Python and grab it and figure out if which what build is right for your system and do that. But like, but you know, you don't have to think about that. You just hit enter, and it happens. And there's your right. Um, or then you say, you know, Posey add requests and then, or Posey add Jupyter and then Posey run notebook, you know, like, and it kind of is handling the the environments behind the scenes. Yeah. Um, I, I talked, yeah, we did a panel discussion with a bunch of core developers around packaging recently. And a lot of them were saying things like, I don't really want to put words in the mouth, but uh, kind of getting the the sense that like, okay, so we have a bunch of tools that are really neat that live within Python. You know, I'm thinking Hatch, Poetry, those that that category of tools, Pip itself, even. Uh, and some of the challenges or problems that they would like to solve, they could unlock a simpler API if it was turned inside out, right? If the tool itself controlled Python and didn't depend on Python to get started, they mentioned Rust up as a, a way to get started, which is a way to kind of install a version of Rust and get started, right? And it feels to me like this is pretty close to that. Yeah, there's a lot of overlap um, for sure in terms of sort of the goals and approach and all of that. Mm -hmm. One challenge I see is, so um, like for example, to run the application for the with the Python that's bundled up inside one of these PyBIs is you would say Posey, run or posy some kind of file or something like that, right? Sure. Yeah, whatever. Could, exactly could, yeah, yeah, yeah. Whatever the CLI that's yet to be fully spec'd out comes out to be. But, you know, could you do things like, could you create, um, you know, speaking of symlinks and other types of stuff, 
could you create just in the same folder where that app lives a Python that actually just calls Posy the Python inside instead of Python itself and and pip that says, you know, Posy run pip inside this Python to kind of bridge uh, to unify the API from where people are coming from um, to kind of expose the the same tools that are inside a little bit. You know what I mean? Well, so yes, I mean, so the way I am currently uh, sort of in my current prototype, basically, um, it doesn't work like that just because it felt sort of more complicated to then like try to expose those things. So um, sort of the sense is like, you know, let's see how far we can get with treating sort of the UI paradigm of like Posy is just your front end to Python. Like you don't, you just, you start your command with Posy and that's, that you, that's the only command you need to know, kind of. Um, and so, and that also allows some interesting things. So, like the way Posy does environments right now is it doesn't, you can have multiple environments within a project. Like if you need to test against multiple Python versions or you need different installs for, I don't know, tests and for building your docs and whatever. Um, and, but it doesn't actually materialize all those as separate independent virtual environments. Instead, what it does is, it uh, for like each unique wheel or PyBy that it needs, it unpacks that into its own directory, and then on the fly it assembles environments by like setting up environment variables so that it, it can launch a Python in such a way that it's you know it picks the right Python and launches in such a way that it sees the right packages it's supposed to see. But there's only one copy of those packages on disk. If you have multiple environments, um, if you want to like try out you know different versions mm-hmm. or whatever, um, it can just sort of like do that. Um, without having to go rearrange everything on disk. Um, and that's just, you know, it's convenient. It's just a really nice way to work with sort of having declarative Python environments. So you never update an environment in place. There is no environment in place. It's just on each command you run, it sort of knows declaratively, okay, these are which packages are supposed to be there. I'll give you those packages. So there isn't even a concept exactly of like pip upgrade or pip install. Mm-hmm. Um, sure, you can sure. just say that next time I invoke environment, I'm going to give you a different specification for which versions I want. And it'll make sure that happens. Um, Feels a little like Docker, right? Like if you create a Docker image and you run a container, you want to make changes to it. You don't log into the container typically and, and mess I, with in that sense, right? Line. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. you would just say, okay, well, we change the Docker file, we shut it down, and we start it back up with the new, up, better version of yeah. itself, right? That, I, and that yeah, sounds like except, like Docker. Yeah, the main difference, the big, a big difference would be that you know, Docker. That when you build it, like the actual Docker file is this big old imperative go scribble here and then delete that and then put something else, you know, that kind of thing. It's yeah. not just a, like, here's the list of things you need. Um, well, it feels to me like a, maybe yeah. a better solution than what Docker is giving you. If what you really just want to do is run a Python, an isolated Python thing repeatedly, because yeah. with Docker, the idea is like, well, you want it re- you want it isolated. So let's do this. Let me give you an entire separate copy of Linux. <laughs> right. I, I know it's running it in like a, not a full VM way and it's not as heavy as a VM, but it's still, you're configuring a Linux computer inside of this container in the way that, whereas this is just like, I just want Python con- configured, not everything. Well, and even more like in Docker, if you want to make sure that you run Docker build twice and get the same package versions, like you have to do that yourself. You have to come up, you have to use, I don't know, pip compile or something like create a lock file and then install from that instead of your original requirements. And, you know, it's a whole thing. There's lots of ways to get it wrong. Whereas in Posy, the way I've written it currently, it's just like there is, you know, there's one operation, one internal function that takes a set of like, okay, these are the packages I want. And it like renders that down into a lock file of like, here's the exact set of packages you need, including all the dependencies and all their versions. 
And then that's the thing that you hand to the run me an environment. So like you have to go through that step. It's just built in. And so we can like, you know, so, and of course, you know, as we build up the, you know, CLI and stuff, idea will be that that will be then, you know, written to disk similar to a cargo.lock or poetry.lock or whatever. Um, and so you just automatically get that reproducibility, which, you know, you don't get that automatically from Docker, right? Um, this is a thing that people could go get um, your, yeah. uh, on your GitHub profile. They could check this out and they could, they could try it, right? Um, so, yeah. Um, let's see. So, yeah. So, obviously, there's a lot of moving parts here. Um, if folks want to help with the um, PyBI part, the PEP 711, um, there's lots of stuff um, could use help with. Uh, but it is also, there's a draft PEP up, and I have built uh, lots of PyBI packages for lots of different versions of Python. For Mac, Windows, Linux, they're up on a CDN. Uh, so, you know, if that uses the same API as PyPI, so you could pip install from there if you had a pip that did it. Um, so it's, it is stuff you can try out right now, um, experiment with at least. And then, yeah, as for the Posy part, um, again, yeah, like I said, it's still, it's mostly the backend stuff, but it is a pretty complete implementation of like all the packaging stuff. Um, it ha it can actually do that demo I was just saying of like, I need these three packages in this version of Python and it can do the dependency resolution for a named specific operating system, which may not be the one you're running on, and then generate that environment and actually invoke it. Um, well, you can only invoke it if it's for the operating system you're running on, of course. But you know, it can do all that stuff. There isn't really a UI in front of it yet, um, but uh, so it's not like something I'm suggesting you go start. You know, rolling out to your company. Everyone adopt today. it, yeah. <laughs> but um, story, yeah. if this is like an exciting project for you. Um, then you could check it out, see where it's at, uh, join in, uh, whatever. Um, there's definitely tons and tons of stuff to do, but it's you know there's a, a good solid start, and I think it's at this point I'm pretty confident like everything could work, right? You know, kind of the the proving it out part um, is pretty much there, done. So question from Marwan in the audience: Hypothetically speaking, does a posy dot lock work as is on different platforms? Uh, right. Yeah. So cross-platform support is a support is a huge issue with uh, locking. Um, I don't know if ever, anyone's ever tried to do this with like pip compile. Like it just doesn't work <laughs> if you have anything complicated, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. like multiple Python versions. Like it just it just doesn't work. You know, good. They tried hard, but yeah. Um, so what I'm doing right now in Posy is um, I've tried to kind of keep it simple. I just say like you know, tell me which platforms you care about. You know, like, uh, you know, I, you know, Resedish Linux and Windows 64 and Mac OS ARM and Intel or something. You'll, you'll give me like a list. Um, and then it will, it can go through, just like loop through that. And for each one, find the right PyBI, look up the metadata to figure out which kinds of packages uh, are appropriate to install there and generate a lock file for each of those. And then, you know, you can somehow like merge the common parts and write them to a file. Um, so the, the individual things that like, you know, resolve this set of versions into, or set of package requests into a exact set of versions that only runs at, for one specific, um, platform at a time, but you know, you okay. can run it multiple times. Um, there are, it might be possible to do something smarter. So I know like poetry has some algorithm that I don't really understand very well, where they try to sort of simultaneously resolve all the platforms into their lock file. And then the way the lock file works is then you actually, you've it's like only like mostly resolved. And then when you actually go to install, it does like that last step to try to narrow it down to the exact platform you're on. Um, and I just, I don't quite, no one's, 
been able to explain to me yet how exactly that algorithm works or even like I'm not 100% sure it's even like if it's fully correct or if it's heuristics based or what. So I don't know, but like, you know, I, we can change, you know, there's lots of options, right? You know, we can change the code if there's a better way to do it. Um, just that's where I'm at so far. Uh, yeah. but, so there is something that people can play with, but it's early days. And yeah. you wouldn't mind having help if people wanted to jump uh, no, in. No, for it. sure. If, you want, if you've been looking for an excuse to learn Rust, um, if you want to, um, yeah, play around with, you know, cool. I mean, it's, there's interesting problems in terms of things like how you efficiently resolve uh you know, do package resolution is like this whole messy, like logic programming problem. Um, it's, you know, MP complete. Um, <laughs> there's just like interesting system engineering problems of like, okay, if we're going to really make this a really nice to use, like you want it, like, how do you unpack 20 wheels as fast as possible? You get to use threads and concurrency and all kinds of stuff. Um, yeah, there's lots of, lots of cool technical bits too. Um, and of course, just making something that's like a joy to use fits nicely in your hand. Lots of fun user interface problems. Yeah. yeah. I'm excited fun. about it, as you can probably tell. Like, I just, I just yeah. love those kinds of problems. So, yeah, yeah absolutely. I, so, this uh, announcement was on discuss.python.org, and I thought, okay, well, it says there's 72 responses. Let me flip down and see how this landed with people, right? Like, <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. Was, you know, <laughs> so, a wide variety of responses. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but I mean, I would say that at least the top batch, the first bunch of people, uh-huh. Paul Moore, deeply involved with PIP, jumps in and says, this is beyond awesome. I hadn't realized you were working actively on this. I'll take a look. I'd love to help out too. Talks about Rust a little. Um, Frederick says, really nice to see this. This is a, a great direction. Um, Giannis says, well, certainly blew my mind. Count me in on how we could explore how this might work for Conda and, and so on. And just, I thought it was really, really quite positive how many, you know, next person. This checks many of the boxes of what I have in mind. <laughs> so I... It seems like it's landing well with the community. I hope that I hope that it continues to make good progress. Yeah, I think the biggest thing is like there were definitely some folks going like, okay, but why are you writing everything in Rust? <laughs> like, especially it's like, you know, we've spent a lot of effort not just making standards for Python packaging, but also like implementing those. So like you can pip install packaging and like right now, and that is a library that can do things like unpack wheels and access the PyPI API. Or I forget exactly which set, but like a lot of the tricky stuff, you know, parse Python metadata um, formats and, you know, just all these different tricky things. And it's like, why, why are you re-implementing this? And also, does it like send the wrong message that like, you know, when we wanted to do something complicated, we thought PyPy or sorry, Python wasn't good enough and we needed to switch to Rust. And I get where they're coming from. Um, but, well, I mean, there's a few things. So one is just that I thought writing in Rust would be fun. You know, I'm not telling you you can't use Python for anything. Sure. I mean, well, let's take a step back um, and say, yeah. how would how would you propose writing that in Python? Well, so if there is no Python, possible. right? That's no, no, it's possible, right? So, yeah, like, okay. so Conda's written Python, right? But and the way, so it makes the distribution a little complicated because, like, when you inst- you get your Conda.sh or mini Conda, you know, like the installer, and it has a Python package inside it, which it unpacks and then uses it to run Conda to install like another another Python or whatever it is that you want to install with Conda. Uh, but it sort of has one built in. And you, you could do the same thing for a, something like Posy. That's Use something like, like PyInstaller to build an executable. Exactly. Would, yeah. But then yeah, uh, for PyInstaller, <laughs> effectively, right? Like um, just, you know, kind of recursively do that. Um, it's totally, you know, it's totally something one could do. Um, the So yeah, but the main reasons um, I'm not to go that way is one is, like I said, like it's just, 
was more interesting to me. It's one thing. There's also like, you know, every um, language has trade-offs, right? And the exact set of things you want from a package installer are kind of right in Rust sweet spot and not Python's. So there's sort of four things that are really important for a tool like Posy. So it's there's the initial install. There's um, the uh, how quickly it starts up because like this is in between you and invoking Python or whatever it is you actually want to do. Um, there's how quickly it can resolve packages um, and how quickly can it unpack packages. Like those are the things that you know you care about. Like those are the the big load bearing pieces. And those are like kind of four of Python's weakest spots, honestly, right? Like so, like we just talked about the deployment part. Um, you can make it work, but you know it's not as straightforward as some things. There'd be more possible think, moving parts, things that could go wrong. It's not the strongest argument, but it is there. Um, for startup speed, just notoriously one of Python's weak spots because if it has to like do all those imports from scratch every time. Um, something think tools like Mercurial have struggled with a lot. Um, you know, lots of Python applications doesn't matter, but you know, for this particular one, that that would be a challenge. Um, and then uh, resolving is big, heavy, like that MP complete, like just really gnarly, burning as many CPUs as you can on complicated logical um, operations. Again, not Python's strongest point. It's not something you could like use NumPy for, and it's not like you know, I/O bound or anything. Yeah, like you could just, use something like Cython potentially, uh, use a no gill. Operation, yeah, but you'd basically be writing it in C at that point. Like the yeah, core you're, logic. you're you're pretty far from core Python in there. Yeah, in yeah, yeah. And then and then finally, they just you know unpacking files is is totally I/O bound and so simple that it's actually a big advantage to be able to just like 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 I/O is so fast these days with like SSDs and everything and NVMe drives that like almost any overhead in the unpacking path actually is pretty substantial as a relative proportion. So like you, you add like one Python operation per, you know, you know, hundred kilobytes written and that might suddenly be like a two X slowdown just because everything else is so fast that even that small amount of Python overhead could be large. And, you know, in a tool like this, like people are really sensitive, like they really care if it takes 10 seconds versus one second to unpack those, uh, the environment. Like that's just a huge difference in usability. So I think it's just, it's kind of really an, like it just happens to be exact combination things that makes Rust pretty compelling, but you could do it the other way too. You know, that's sure. not, I'm not making a. It isn't meant as a political point. It's yeah. Just, okay. Got know. it. I mean, yeah. Python is written in C. Yeah. Sure. So well, except PyPy, but <laughs> I mean the 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 core you know the core bit of it is written in C, right? C. Yeah, it is, no, but that's... yeah, PyPy is written in Python, right? Hence the name. So, yeah, that's true. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. C5 written in C. It says it right there. Yeah, exactly. Okay, interesting. Yeah. Um, I think we're probably out of time to, to dive much further in this, but... Sure, yeah, I think we covered a lot. I, I think we covered a lot, I, I guess. Anything else you want Give me your thoughts on the future. Like, what do you think does is the pep gaining traction right this is in draft mode i don't know how much i emphasized at the beginning but it is not an accepted ah uh, yes yet, that is right? important so to be clear on though yeah yeah um, it's where, just where it? i i wrote it i posted it for feedback that's as far as it's gotten you know there's no uh there's no commitment on anyone's part to like that this is what's actually going to happen that said um i'm pretty optimistic like I th like i said i got a little bit of pushback on the posy part because of like the rust and whatever but um I don't think I've gotten, I can't think of really like any pushback on the PEP 7.11, the actual PyBI part, except people are like, well, but why aren't you using Conda or something, which, you know, fair question, but you know, there's an answer. And I don't think anyone like, like 
It's not something that like the people that you need whose agreement you need to get this accepted are like, you know, the PyPI maintainers and Python packaging maintainers. And they are totally okay with like Conda's not the solution to everything, obviously. Right. right sure. Well, so, and how complicated would it yeah. be to fit Conda into this particular use case, right? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely room to collaborate better there. Um, and I would love to see that in the future. But um, yeah, but yeah, but my sense is that there's just really hasn't been a lot of like people just seem pretty much like, yeah, this is cool. I guess actually the biggest thing is that there's been uh, some feedback from folks like the PyOxidizer folks saying like, hey, we would like a bit more metadata so we could fully, you know, dissolve some of our other things we want to do. Like we want to be able to cross compile for a given Python and we need to know a bit more about the target Python in order to do that. Uh, so that's okay. just a very technical, it's like, yeah, okay, more stuff we should add and tweak. It's not against the but idea. The core idea. Like evolving it. Yeah. yeah, I think the, the basic idea, generally people seem to be on board. Um, I'm not going to like, you know, make a commitment to what like python.org and PyPI and all they're actually going to do. But my, I don't, I'm pretty hopeful. I think that, you know, they're definitely some of the folks involved in like building the python.org downloads right now are like, oh yeah, I'd build one of these if that was standard. Sure. Um, sure. So it, is, it isn't all signed off on and, you know, full, but there seems to be a pretty reasonable consensus that like, this is a good direction that we're interested in moving in. So. Well, it sure caught yeah. my attention when I saw it. So uh, I'm excited to <laughs> yeah, see. Well, thanks, thanks for having me on to, yeah, talk about it. Yeah, you bet. No, let me just ask you real quick the final two questions. Since it has been five years since I asked them of you, uh, okay. <laughs> you write some Python code. Do you work on this? Uh, what editor are you using these days? Uh, I am using Emacs, same as I've been since I was thirteen. So all right, right on. I, that's not a political position. That's just I, you know, I'm stuck. <laughs> Once you like all your commands chords, right? Okay, <laughs> you know, like that's it. Yeah, <laughs> excellent. And then notable PyPI package. Uh, some, just some, some random cool. PyPI package. Yeah, just like. something you like ran across. This is awesome. People should know about this. Could be very popular, um, not popular at all. Oh man, shoot! I did not prepare for this. Should have. <laughs> um, I mean, I don't like. There's some obvious. Like, obviously, I like you know trios. Been thinking about a lot, but uh, that's not an interesting answer for this. Um, you mentioned rough earlier. I think. Uh, I think you mentioned rough, but rough is uh, pretty. Maybe cool. I did mention rough. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, rough is very awesome. Um, if you, anyone doesn't know, rough is sort of you know flake eight um, and such re-implemented in Rust, so it's like a hundred times faster. Like you just like instantaneously lints all your code, which is very sweet. Is a selling point for Rust integrated with Python, right? Like another use case that looks pretty neat. Yeah, and I, you know, sort of as I'm digging into it, I'm really impressed at how they, those two, uh, how well they fit together. People put a lot of work into like making that really smooth and having them collaborate well. Actually, something I've just been working on at, at work is um, we've been having trouble with um, so uh, in an async library like Trio. Um, the you have lots of tasks running concurrently, but they only like the scheduler only gets to switch from one task to another when one task explicitly lets go, like says, okay, I can stop here. We're using an await statement. Um, so it's possible to write code where you accidentally like don't do that for a long time, and that task will just like hog um, all the runtime and block other tasks from running. And it'd be nice, it's hard to kind of tell when that's happening. Um, and a similar thing could happen with the gill. Um, so if you have like a s extension library, like, you know, PyTorch or something, and they forget to drop the gill before doing some big heavyweight operation, then it could just block any other threads from running. Um, and that's really awkward. We've been having trouble with that. And, um, but well, you know, like PySpy, that's another really cool package, if anyone's seen it, um, is a Rust profiler for Python that can just sit outside your process and uh, can um, like give you, you know, tell you what it's doing. Um, and But also it being in Rust and it's up on, you know, crates, 
Thought.io, I could just write a little program that imports uh, PySpy and uses it as a library, but and tweak it so that instead of looking for like where's code spending time, it detects okay is something hogging you know the gill or the run loop and um, and and give me the traceback, show me which code is doing that. Um, and it's again really neat to be able to you know get that really deep insight into this Python stuff that you know we're still. You know, we were using it. It's still Python, but um, the Rust really is a great flavor that goes with it. <laughs> cool. PySpy. All right. People can check that out. That's sampling profiler for Python programs. Excellent. Yes. Yeah. PySpy is really cool. Indeed. All right. Well. Okay, cool. Thanks uh, for being here. Um, if people are interested in the PEP, what should they do? Um, I mean, I guess the the post on discuss.python.org. Uh, um, is the good best place for like feedback. It's also um, where I posted about um, Posy. So if you want to like see the discussion or join in, that's a good place. If you want to like you know help, then yeah, GitHub.com/njsmith/posy is the repository. You know, jump in, send PRs, file issues, whatever, um, or just you know send me a you know I don't know yeah what's the two at me I guess the <laughs> Mastodon version. <laughs> I'm not really on Twitter these days, but yeah, um, NJS at Mastodon.social. Um, and I'll see it. Cool. All right. Well, Nathaniel, thanks for being here. Thanks for this pep. It looks interesting. Yeah. Thanks. It's great. Great being here. Yeah, you bet. This has been another episode of Talk Python to Me. Thank you to our sponsors. Be sure to check out what they're offering. It really helps support the show. Take some stress out of your life. Get notified immediately about errors and performance issues in your web or mobile applications with Sentry. Just visit talkpython.fm slash Sentry and get started for free. And be sure to use the promo code TALKPYTHON, all one word. Want to level up your Python? We have one of the largest catalogs of Python video courses over at TalkPython. Our content ranges from true beginners to deeply advanced topics like memory and async. And best of all, there's not a subscription in sight. Check it out for yourself at training.talkpython.fm. Be sure to subscribe to the show, open your favorite podcast app, and search for Python. We should be right at the top. You can also find the iTunes feed at slash iTunes, the Google Play feed at slash play, and the direct RSS feed at slash RSS on talkpython.fm. We're live streaming most of our recordings these days. If you want to be part of the show and have your comments featured on the air, be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel at talkpython.fm slash YouTube. This is your host, Michael Kennedy. Thanks so much for listening. I really appreciate it. Now get out there and write some Python code.